Well, if you have your Bibles with you again, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 10. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 573. If you're a guest with us, we've been uh, spending the summer months working through uh, the book of Psalms, at least the beginning of the book anyway, and we're at Psalm 10 this morning. And I'm going to speak for a few minutes on this subject today. You've been there. Psalm 10. And we'll begin reading in verse number 1. And this is what the Word of God says. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God? And say in his heart, you will not call to account. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Have you ever heard anyone say that Psalm 10 is their favorite psalm in the Psalter? Neither have I which shows us that one usually doesn't study Psalm 10 because it is their favorite, but one studies Psalm 10 like we do this morning because it is the next one in the order of the book of Psalms. And yet, it is in these texts that we often find the greatest encouragement when we least expect it. Psalm 10 was probably originally joined with Psalm 9 to form one hymn of praise. 
And in Psalm 9, there is an acrostic that takes place that is built on the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And as we come to Psalm 10, Psalm 10 picks up the Hebrew alphabet and finishes it. As David pours out his lament over the overwhelming circumstances that surround him. In Psalm 10, David has a front row seat as the wicked mistreat the poor, the innocent, the helpless, and the fatherless with all manner of wickedness. And it appears that God is either unaware of the plight of his people or he simply doesn't care. And so David in Psalm 10 asks the question that every generation asks, the question that you have asked and that I have asked at one point or another in our lives, God, where are you? Now you don't need a long introduction to this psalm because verse 1 sets the tone and the theme for all of Psalm 10. And David says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble you've been there you've asked the same questions that David asked and you understand what David is thinking and feeling as he writes this psalm and in this psalm David lifts his eyes and ours beyond the problems and pain of this life to the final judgment of the wicked and the unending joy that awaits believers in the life to come David models for us in Psalm 10 how to walk with God in the midst of our wine. And because you've been there and because I've been there, Psalm 10 is helpful. So notice with me four truths that David teaches us in this psalm. First of all, in verse 1 and 2, we see the perplexity of David. He writes, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And at the end of verse 2, he writes, let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Now, we all realize that there are numerous seasons in every believer's life, and sometimes those seasons change abruptly. And this was the case for David as he moves from a position of passionate and confident prayer in Psalm 9 to a position of perplexity at the beginning of Psalm 10. David begins Psalm 10 with a cry of anguish in despair. His anguish and his despair are not because there is evil and corruption and injustice in the world around him. His cry is of anguish and despair because God seems to have ignored it and because God seems to have withdrawn his gracious presence. And so David begins the psalm by lamenting with two rhetorical questions in verse 1. Why, Lord, are you so far removed from the pain and the problems of your people? And why, Lord, does it feel like you're hiding from us? Now, David, unlike his enemies that he'll teach us about in this psalm, does not doubt God's existence. He does not doubt God's omniscience. He knows that God is there, and he knows that God knows what is going on. But in David's mind, God seems to be indifferent to the troubles of his people. 
He appears to have withdrawn and gone into hiding so that he will not have to deal with all the injustice and all of the evil and all of the wickedness that is taking place in the world. But here's what you need to understand about David's questions and his lament. Behind his whys is the implication that God is acting in a way that is not true to his character. In other words, this is not what David expected from Yahweh. David has been walking with God for a long time in his life. And God has been faithful to him in the fields as he was watching over the flocks. God has been faithful to him as a leader of God's people. And now David sees all of this injustice, all of this evil, all of this wickedness. And he's perplexed. God, this is not how you've responded to me. This has not been my experience with you. What is going on? You are acting out of character. And so it's really important to note in verse 1 that the question of why does not mean that David is lacking faith. It's just the opposite, friends. The question of why presupposes faith. Because if there is no faith in God, then why ask why? You can only ask why if you have faith in God. And so David's faith is perplexed. But notice in verse 2 that when his faith is perplexed, his faith pleads. And at the end of verse 2, he offers up this prayer. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. David asks the Lord to respond to the evil and the injustice and the wickedness that is taking place and to do to the wicked what they are trying to do to the innocent. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on this prayer says the psalmist does not use God's baffling him as an excuse for disengaging with God but as an incentive to press on with God do you catch that friends when you are perplexed with God when I am perplexed with God when we are lamenting, when we are asking our whys, when we are burdened, when life doesn't seem to make sense, that is not the time to disengage with God. David is teaching us that that is exactly the right time to engage with God on a deeper level. And so in his perplexity, he cries out of his anguish and his cry to God is a cry of faithfulness. For to cry out to the Lord in the manner that David is crying out is to declare confidence in the Lord. It is to declare confidence in the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God and the power of God and the ability of God and the steadfast love of God. Friends, David is not engaging in an academic or mere intellectual pursuit. This is a devotional dilemma of his life. 
He is walking with God in the midst of wickedness and evil and injustice. He doesn't understand what God is doing and why God is not responding the way David thinks that God ought to respond. He knows from experience in his own life the goodness and the faithfulness and the power of God. And he is perplexed. And so he is leaning in even harder with God and walking devotionally with him. He doesn't understand God's inaction. And yet in the midst of his questions, he continues to trust God. And that, friends, is a sign of faithfulness. And here's what I know this morning. All of us at one time or another have been perplexed with God like David. And we have found ourselves asking why. And you may be sitting in a pew in this room this morning asking that very question. Why is this going on in my life? Why did this happen to me? Where is God? Why does he seem so far away? But the question that really needs to be asked this morning is this one. When you don't understand God in his ways, will you continue to trust him? Will you continue to remain faithful to him? Will you continue to deal with the God who perplexes you? That's the real question. We not only see the perplexity of David in verses 2 through through, uh, 11. Goodness gracious. 2 through 11, we see the picture of David's enemies. Now, David, in these verses gives a threefold description of the wicked. That's how he defines the enemies that are surrounding him. And when he uses the word wicked, he is referring to the worst of activities that the ungodly can engage in. And he says three things about the wicked. And what I want you to note in these three statements is how relevant they are to the 21st century. When I point these out to you, you're going to say, yep, that's the world I live in this morning. Here's the first one. The wicked say that God does not exist in verses 2 through 4. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. In verse 3, for the wicked boast of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And in verses 2 through 4, David emphasizes the pride that consumes the wicked. David describes the arrogance of the wicked in verse 2 as they hotly pursue the poor. And that phrase, hotly pursue, is interesting. It carries the idea of burn or being burned, and it emphasizes the intensity of the suffering that the wicked are dishing out on the poor. And the implication of the language here in verse 2 is that the wicked are simply engaging in this wickedness for sport. In their depraved thinking, they are finding great pleasure in doing harm 
to others. Furthermore, in verse 3, David says that the wicked boast of the desires of their soul, and they curse and they renounce the Lord in their greed. Now you have to stop and notice what is happening in the text. Look at it carefully in verse 3, and it will help you understand clearly what you're seeing lived out before your very eyes in this world. David says that in their pride and in their arrogance, the wicked boast. They're boasting. They're relishing in something. And the text says that they are boasting in the evil desires of their soul. That their soul is consumed with darkness and wickedness and evil And all they think about doing is fulfilling those evil desires. And at the height of their pride, they boast in what they want. They boast in their desires. And at the same time, look at the text, they curse and renounce the Lord. Do you see the two train of thoughts? They're boasting in their evil desires and what they want, and they're cursing and renouncing God as if he has any authority over their life. And look at the text carefully, and the connection to their boasting and their denial of God is their greed. Their greed pulls these two lines of thought together. And what David is teaching us is that the wicked's problem is a problem of worship. Their greed and their evil desires have become their God. And they are proud of their idolatry. But he's not finished. Moreover, in verse number 4, he says that the idolatry of the wicked has led to their denial. Full of pride, they do not see their need for God, and they adamantly declare there is no God. Their pride has led them to a position where there's no room for God in their thinking and there's no room for God in their living. And when you don't believe that God exists, you become your own God. And you establish your own standards of morality. And you live for yourself and you live for your own pleasure and you live for your own evil desires. And I want you to know this morning, I want you to mark it well, that unrestrained pride will always lead to a denial of God. And that's what they're doing. Sam Storms described it this way. This is the person who is so convinced that divine judgment is a myth that he or she doesn't even bother to hide his or her desires and evil intentions. He worships his own desires. Listen carefully. It is one thing to be a sinner. It is another thing to be proud of being a sinner. And it is still worse to so indulge your sinful desires that it seems as if you are worshiping those sinful desires. This person boasts of what they should be ashamed of. And I'm telling you this morning that that is the commentary on our world. If you want to understand where our world is this morning, it is right here in verses 2 through 4. 
putting all of your evil desires, all of your unrestrained passions, all of your wickedness on full display for the whole world to see, while at the same time renouncing God and renouncing and silencing anyone who would challenge you in your immorality. And I would say to you this morning that that is the height of sin and the height of pride and the height of rejection of God. In verses 5 through 7, they not only say God does not exist, they say God does not see. Verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Verse 7, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief. And iniquity. In verse 5, David describes the wicked as prospering all the times. They believe that their evil ways are secure and that their prosperity will never come to an end because God is so far removed from them. God's judgments are on high. They're clear out of his sight. He can't even see what the wicked are doing. In their arrogance, they believe that if God did somehow exist, his judgments would be so far removed from them that they would never experience the consequences for their sin and they would get away with their evil attitudes and actions. And do you know that the Bible describes this very reality that David is giving us in verse number 5? It's found in Ecclesiastes. David's son writes this about how the wicked think because they're not immediately punished, God doesn't see their sin. And he writes this in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of the man is fully set to do evil. Let me paraphrase it for you. Solomon says because sinners commit sin and God doesn't immediately punish them always when they commit sin they think they're getting away with it and so they can just go on keeping on sinning that's what he's saying and he's saying that in that attitude they enjoy their prosperity they're convinced that they'll never face divine justice in their mind they say God is too distant to take notice of their actions but now I want you to listen to the next two verses that Solomon writes after the one I just read to you. Ecclesiastes 8, 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it, listen, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Translation? Solomon says you've got it all wrong. If you think that God doesn't see, if you think that God doesn't take note of your evil and your wickedness and your sin, if you think somehow you're going to prosper in it and you're never going to be held accountable, your life will come to an end when you least realize it. Only those who fear the Lord will have prolonged days. That is what Solomon is saying. In verse 6, the pride of the wicked leads him to believe that nothing will shake him and nothing will thwart his evil plans. Look at what he says. The wicked declares that he shall not be moved and he shall never meet adversity. And his attitude climaxes in verse 7. 
And David says their mouths are full of cursing and deceit and oppression. And they savor their mischief and their iniquity. It tastes good to them. They linger long over their sin. That is the height of their rebellion. And I want you to know this morning that the peace and prosperity of the wicked give them a false sense of security. Because the Bible says that in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the trumpet of God, things will change drastically for the wicked. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. Do you hear that? There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Listen church. Wake up. Don't fall asleep. They will not escape. If somehow you think you have a plan B that separates you from God's plan, would you listen to your pastor this morning? You will not escape. You will not. He sees it all. Nothing can be hidden from God. Nothing. And then in verses 8 to 11, the wicked say God doesn't care. Verse 8, he sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless he lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket he lurks that he may seize the poor he seizes the poor when he draws him into his net the helpless are crushed they sink down and they fall by his might and he says in his heart God has forgotten he's hidden his face he'll never see it verse 8 David describes the wicked as an assassin hiding in the shadows Lying in wait near the villages, ambushing and murdering the innocent and the helpless. Then in verse 9, he says, The wicked are like ferocious lions hiding in the thicket, waiting for just the right opportunity to pounce on their prey. And like skilled hunters and fishermen, the wicked capture the poor in their nets. David summarizes all of these actions of the wicked in verse 10, stating that their victims are crushed, they sink down, and they fall at their feet. And finally, in verse 11, the wicked conclude that because the Lord has not acted and the Lord has not stopped them, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face and he's unable to see their actions. Therefore, God simply doesn't care about wickedness and evil and sin. Do you see the progression in verses 2 to 11? It is easy to see that the wicked are covering all of their bases. Can't you see it? They move from the denial of the existence of God to if God should happen to exist, He is a distant deity who is not willing to intervene. And finally, to a God, if He is not distant... He is just so weak and so indifferent, he just simply doesn't care. And that's why the world is the way it is. And that's why evil reigns rampant. And that's why there's no justice. 
Now, if you thought David was perplexed in verses 1 and 2, what do you think he's thinking in verses 2 through 11? What are we to make of these verses? Well, I would tell you that I think it's helpful to understand exactly what the wicked and those who don't know God are saying and thinking because it helps you understand the world that you find yourself now living in. It makes more sense to you. Stop trying to make sense of this world through the news and what they're piping at you and start trying to make sense of this world through the lens of the Bible and you'll be far better helped. And this is the lens from which we need to see that. But there's another reason that these verses are helpful. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, describes it this way, and it is so helpful. He says here in Psalm 10, God is far off and the tyrant is doing nicely, and it is a function of the Psalms to touch the nerve of this problem and keep its pain alive against the comfort of our familiarity with a corrupt world. Did you catch that? It's the Psalm's job to keep the pain alive so that you and I don't grow comfortable with the familiarity of the wickedness of the world that we're living in. And he goes on to write, the writer spills this ink on the wicked to keep the pain alive, to make us uncomfortable, to remind us that as Yahweh's servant, we stand against a wicked world. So how does that help me, Pastor? Well, it reminds you that if you're a Christian this morning, you are at war. And if you don't think you're at war, you've misunderstood the battle that you're in. The moment that you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were enlisted in the war. Why do you think God gave you armor in Ephesians chapter 6? So you could go hang out at the playground? Or so you could go get on the battlefield? And if you don't realize that you're in a war, you won't understand the importance of these verses in this psalm. They are given to us to keep pain alive. They are given to us to aggravate us, to anger us, to sadden us, to keep us from forgetting, listen, to keep us from forgetting that our lives as Christians will always be in opposition to this world. So why are you still trying to be friends with it? That's what your pastor wants to know this morning. Why are you still trying to live in the world of heaven and in the world of this earth? It's a fool's errand. You can't have it all. You can't have it both. These verses are given to you to prod you, to prick you, to cause you to wake up and to cause you to quit being familiar with the wickedness and evil of this world. To stop being desensitized to it. To stand up against it. To fight for your soul. To fight for your family. To fight for your church. To fight for truth. That's why these verses are here. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten you're in a war? Have you forgotten what Jesus said? That the devil came to steal, to kill, and destroy? 
that that is his plan for your life and for the life of your family to destroy you? No. These verses, friends, these verses help us see the world we live in. It gives us answers to why. And it teaches us not to withdraw from God, but to draw closer in. To be so burdened about it that we're engaging with God in His Word. We're depending on Him in prayer. Well, we see the perplexity of David and the picture of David's enemies in verses 12 to 15. We see the plea of David. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Do you see what David does? In the midst of his perplexity, in the midst of the perversity of the wicked, David turns his eyes to God. And he turns them to God in faith and in hope and in prayer. And in verse 12, with a passionate appeal and a sense of urgency, David cries out for God to strike the wicked and remember the afflicted. We've seen this phrase that he uses in verse 12 four times in the first 10 Psalms. Arise, O Lord, come out on behalf of your people. It is a cry of battle for God to come and engage in the fight. And there's something else interesting that takes place in the text in verse 12. The urgency of David's plea is also stressed by the use of three different names for God. He uses the covenant-keeping name for God, Yahweh, he uses the word for God, El, and he uses the word for God, Elohim. The power of God and the covenant-keeping grace of God. God, come in your covenant-keeping grace. God, come in your power and defeat the wicked. Raise your arm up against him, Lord. Then in verse 13, David asks another why question. Astonished that the wicked truly believe they will never be held accountable for their actions. There is no logical explanation for this kind of thinking other than the total depravity of man. Verse 13 is a picture of where sin will ultimately take you. It will take you to the place where you truly believe in your heart. You will never give an answer to God. You will never be held accountable. It reminded me of what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. He said, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God gave them up to their sin. And that's what's happening in verse 13. They're at the height of their sin, and they're saying, we'll never be held accountable by God. And God is just giving them up to their sin. Now notice there's a shift that takes place in verses 14 and 15. In these verses, the psalmist restores an accurate picture of God. In verses 14 and 15, David emphatically declares that God does know, God does see, and God does act. 
It's exactly what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 33, verses 13 to 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all observes all of their deeds. Nothing can be hidden from God, friends. He sees and knows everything. Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Did you see that? Did you hear that? The Lord upholds his people, and he will bring the wicked to destruction and devastation and complete and utter ruin. And after pleading with God to lift up his hand against the wicked in verse 12, David now declares in verses 14 and 15 that God will take that same uplifted hand and he will take hold of the mischief and the vexation of the wicked and he will break the arm of the wicked so that they no longer have power to do wickedness and he will hold them accountable until there is no wickedness left. Do you see how that ends in verse 15? Don't miss this. This is hope. This is surety. This is certainty. This is confidence in the God of the Bible. He says at the end of verse 15, he will call wickedness to account until he finds none of it. It means that God, when he responds to evil and wickedness, he will wipe it out until there's no semblance of it left anywhere. And you say to me this morning, well, pastor, if that's true, then why? Why is he doing it now? Why isn't he acting right now? Why is he waiting? It's a good question. Do you know the Bible speaks to it? Do you know the Bible answers that question? I'm going to give you three passages of Scripture that answer your question. Listen to me this morning. If you're an unbeliever in this room today, and what I mean by that is that you have never acknowledged that you're a sinner and your sin separates you from God, And that when you couldn't get to God because of your sin, God came to you through his son Jesus. And that Jesus died for your sin on the cross and was buried and put in a tomb and rose from the grave for your sins so that you could have your sins forgiven and have a relationship with God. That's what it means to be a Christian. You turn from your sin and you believe that what Jesus did on the cross, he did it for you. That's what makes you a Christian. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not a believer this morning, I can't plead with you any more than I'm pleading with you right now to listen to these three passages of Scripture and the couple comments I'm going to make about them that says, why is God waiting to bring justice to wickedness and sin and evil? So I hope I got your attention because I know there's unbelievers in this room. Number one. Paul warns us not to draw the wrong conclusion when God is slow to respond to sin and evil and wickedness. Don't get the wrong conclusion. Listen to Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Say, well, what am I to make of that verse? Well, God's delay in dealing with sin and wickedness is not a sign of indifference. It's not a sign of forgetfulness. It is a sign of kindness. It is a sign of forbearance. It is a sign of patience. 
And the text says it's a sign of God's patience and kindness and forbearance, giving you every opportunity to recognize that you're a sinner and your sin separates you from God and to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your forgiveness and for a relationship with God. It's God's kindness that you have not been judged in your sin yet. He is forbearing with you. He is patient with you. But his patience is going to come to an end. And let me be clear this morning. He is patient with you because he wants you to repent and turn away from your sins and trust in his son, Jesus. Here's the second reason. God is delaying judgment so that the cup of the wicked will overflow with wickedness. You say, what? Oh, you heard me right. God is delaying justice so that the cup of the wicked in their actions will overflow with wickedness. You say, well, why is he doing that? So there'll be no question about his divine judgment and justice. No question. You say, you got verses for that? Oh, I do. I do. I surely do. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, the very next two verses. Listen carefully to it. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Did, did you hear the text, friend? You're storing up for yourself wrath. Here's the clearest way I could illustrate it for you. On the day that you meet Jesus face to face, and if you've never trusted him as your savior and repented of your sins, on that day you're going to be begging and wishing that God would have made your life shorter so you would have had less sin to be accountable for and judged for. That's the picture. On that day, you're going to wish that your life was shorter. Because he's just allowing sin to rise up in your life and overflow because you refuse to repent and trust in Jesus. Number three, God's judgment is delayed until the full family of God comes into the kingdom. You realize that before the foundation of the world, God set apart a people for himself and that God's son died for every person that the Father set apart for himself. And God is withholding his divine judgment and justice until all of those people come into the kingdom of heaven. And when the last one comes, judgment will be unleashed. You say, you got a verse for that, Pastor? I do. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's a common theme here, friend. It's a common theme. God is doing all of this for your benefit. He's doing it for you so that you'll recognize your sin, you'll turn away from it, and you'll trust and believe in Jesus and be forgiven of your sin and be restored to the God who made you. So I wonder, have you misunderstood the delay of his judgment? Do you see that God's patience and kindness is meant for your good? And are you presuming on that kindness today? 
when we've seen the perplexity of David, the picture of David's enemies, the plea of David, and finally, in verses 16 to 18, we see the praise of David. Psalm 10 ends on a note of assurance and confidence that our good God will bring ultimate justice. And with dramatic declaration of God's eternal reign in verse 16, the psalmist affirms that the Lord is king forever and ever. Daniel emphasized God's eternal reign. And he said that God's eternal reign is for the sake of his glory and the good of his people. And no one can question the way God does the things that he does. And this is what Daniel writes in Daniel 4, 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, and none can say to him, What have you done? This God is unstoppable. He is unquestionable. He is unrivaled. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is forever and ever and ever and ever. And I want you to notice, because this will help you this morning, what David affirms after he exalts and praises this God. In verses 17 and 18, he affirms four truths. And this is for you this morning if you're, you're here asking why. This is for you this morning if you're perplexed. This is for you this morning if you're broken and burdened. This king whose kingdom will never end, who will reign forever and ever, he will, look at the text, I'm going to point all four of them out to you. He will hear the desire of those who are afflicted in pain. Oh, when you think he is far away, David says, see, here's your prayer. He is not far away. Secondly, he will strengthen the heart of the afflicted in your brokenness, in your weakness, in your perplexity, in your questioning, in your pain. He is your strength. Number three, he'll incline his ear to you. The picture is that he picks it up and he just draws a little closer because he loves to hear what you're saying to him. He'll draw near. And number four, he'll respond in justice. He'll make every right, wrong, wrong, right. And look at how the text ends. And he does all of this so that the man who is of the earth and temporal will be no more, but God will remain forever. Here's what I know. Life on this earth is short. And life in eternity is long. And God's kingdom will never come to an end, but evil will. Satan's work will. Injustice will be no more. Wickedness will be no more. Here's how Spurgeon responded to David's praise. 
He said, let us learn that we are sure to speed well if we carry our complaint to the king of kings. Rights will be vindicated and wrongs redressed at his throne. His government neglects not the interest of the needy, nor does it tolerate oppression in the mighty. Great God, we leave ourselves in your hand. To you we commit your church afresh. Arise, O God, and let the man of the earth the creature of a day be broken before the majesty of your power. Come, Lord Jesus, and glorify your people. Amen and amen. And if you're a child of God, you will refrain with that same amen. You've been there. I've been there. Every generation asks the same question. Where are you, God? And surrounded by increasing unbelief and unrestricted wickedness, it's easy to lose hope and be discouraged. That's why you have to lift your eyes to the heavens and see where your help comes from. Oh, dear friends, this world is under the divine judgment of God. And one day it's going to fall completely into his hands. And you can trust him for that. And if you can trust him for that, you can trust him for what's causing you to ask why today. Let's pray.